We're trying to open up our school to our community and open enrollment, and we had an interview with a family, and I'm just going to kind of leave it there, but something happened during the interview when we were going around the classes, and Nate showed himself as the great pastor's kid that he is, so that was, that was awesome. The, the parents just started laughing. I'm like, I'm like yep, that's, that's my kid. It's my kid. Don't hold it against us. All right, Acts chapter number 9, Acts chapter number 9. It's been about 17 or 18 weeks since we've been in the book of Acts. Uh, we've done a couple studies through this book so far, and this is our third series within this great book. I'm excited to get back into it. So I thought about since it's been so long, we're just going to have to review the first eight chapters. So hang on for the next hour while I rush through. No, we're not going to do that. Um, but most of what has happened thus far, hopefully you remember, uh, we've been talking about the early church and how the early church has uh, not just really started and formed, but really exploded. Ever since Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the grave. We talked about that a little bit last week on Easter Sunday. And then he ascended up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And then he commissioned his disciples, his followers, to go out, fulfill the great commission. He gave them a new purpose. And the purpose that he gave them is the purpose that he has given us. And what we're going to be talking about in this series specifically is how that we as Christians, as Christ's followers, as his disciples, we have been activated. And I'll describe a little bit about what that is a little bit later in the message today. But we have been activated for service and for gospel ministry. And I'm excited about this series this morning. But remember, we've been talking a lot about what a gospel identity is. And we'll discuss this more in detail in the next couple of weeks in our EQ time. Excited to jump back into that as well. But a gospel identity is about losing your pre-existing self in order to find who you are in Christ so that you can flourish. And a lot of people that I've realized in my life and discovered, uh, it's been five and a half years as a pastor, but really I've been saved a long time. I'm coming up on my 37th birthday here in a couple weeks. I've been saved since I was almost five years old, so a long time. But I've realized that there are a lot of people that truly don't understand who they are in Christ. The moment you get saved, God has changed you forever. But a lot of Christians that I've learned don't live in light of the change. And what I mean is that Christ has set us free. We've spent a lot of time in Acts talking about that. We've spent a lot of time in Ephesians talking about who we are in Christ. And the reality is there's a lot of people that are saved that know their Bibles, but they're not living in light of what God's Word teaches them. And that's what we're trying to help unpack, not just this morning, but in our services, and understand that God's cutting edge is you, meaning that we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. You know, we went on that mission trip to, to Africa, had a great time. That's one thing the, minister, or the missionary kept talking about, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, and taking his gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And that's one thing that, as a pastor, I want to encourage our people to understand that you are the hands and feet of Jesus. It's up to you to take what you have learned, the, the, the tools that God has given you, uh, and, and really the messages that I've given, the, the, the lessons that I've given. Take that and use it to give it to someone else. That's how the world is going to change. That's how our churches are going to grow and advance. So Acts chapter 9, let's go ahead and stand if you would. We're going to read just a couple of verses this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19 in the message. But Acts chapter 9, this is an amazing chapter, really a trans, transitional chapter. Again, that's kind of what we stopped before. Because in Acts chapter 9, it's really one of the greatest conversions in the history of mankind. It's the conversion of Saul 
who we know as Paul, the apostle. Now, Saul was, was a horrible man. He was a bad man, uh, did a lot of horrible things. He was the one that was instrumental in the death of Stephen. We talked about that uh, a couple messages ago in the Acts series. But look, verse number one, chapter nine, the Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. So it was his intent, his mission, not to carry out the gospel, but his mission at this time was to destroy any Christian that was in his path, any Christ follower that was in his path. He wanted to destroy them. He wanted to slaughter them, which basically is another way to say murder them. Verse number two, and desired of him letters to Damascus. So he went to the high priest that gave him letters so that he could fulfill this commission that he had amongst himself, uh, he went to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, now this way or the way is uh, what the Christians were referred to at this time. They weren't referred to as Christians. They were referred to as children of the way because the Bible says in John 14, Jesus saith unto them, I am what? I am the way, the truth and the life. So a lot of the early Christ followers were referred to as the way. So it was his job, desire to anyone that followed the way of Jesus, whether there were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, something happened, something changed as he was going out to really execute and really bring people in to be executed and slaughtered. He came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now this wasn't just the sun. This was a greater light even than the sun. Now the sun is pretty bright in and of itself. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto them, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, this is actually the voice of the resurrected, the ascended Christ. Verse 5, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we jump back into the Acts series. And I'm really excited about this study, Lord. You've taught me so much in the first eight chapters thus far. And as we have already discussed, that if we are a child of God, we have been commissioned with a purpose. The purpose is not to live the life that we, that we want to live. The purpose is to live the life that you have called us to live, to go out and to make other followers of you and, and make disciples of all nations. And I pray that you would help us to realize our commission and carry out our commission. It's not something that's optional. It is a command direct from the throne room of heaven that Christians are supposed to do and follow. And Lord, if we understand that we have been commissioned, help us to truly live the gospel on a day-to-day -day basis, to realize that the gospel is above all. And as we jump into this series, the next couple chapters, help us to realize that we have been activated. We have been activated to live in light of our new identity. And Lord, this, this, this passage today, what we see is an epic transformation of someone who wasn't saved, who was an enemy of the church, an enemy of followers of Christ, and suddenly he met Jesus and Jesus changed his life. Lord, we've all heard or experienced people that have gotten saved and completely changed, dramatically changed from who they were. Help us to realize that no one is so far out of your reach that cannot be saved. Lord, there are people that I look at and think that there's no way that they could ever be saved. But Lord, help me to continue to do what I can to try to lead them to you, to try to show them who you are. Lord, I pray that you bless us today for the next few minutes. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
Thank you so much. You may be seated. How many have ever done a transformation project? Stephanie? <laughs> Sometimes it takes longer than you anticipate, right, guys? Right, Randy? Yeah, just a little bit longer. Um, you know, we've all had those transformation projects that we've been a part of. You know, sometimes it's a small project. You take something and you repurpose it. And, you know, we've all got, though, I don't have any pictures today, but, you know, you got those before and after type things. Now, what typically is supposed to happen is the after product is supposed to be better than the before product, right? But how many have ever had the after be worse than the before? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, a couple of us. You talking about each other or... I mean, I, I didn't really know what they were saying there, but anyway, uh, no, they weren't. Uh, we've done that. You know, I, I've tried to build things or whatever, and uh, it, the after did not turn out like, you know, Etsy or Pinterest said it was going to turn out. It turned out far different, far worse. But typically, you start out with a before project, a, a transformation project that needs changing, that needs fixing up, and then you fix it up, and it's like, wow, that's amazing. You know, we've done a lot of transformational type projects uh, since we've been here at the church and even, you know, the auditorium, uh, you know, it's, it's changed drastically in just uh, five, five and a half years from where we were. You know, it looks, I think it looks better. It uh, uh, looks better than what it did. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily bad, but it was time for an update. And sometimes, same is true in our houses. There's time that needs to be updated. And what we're going to look at today is really an epic and amazing transformation. You know, the, the stories that I like the most aren't necessarily churches that have, you know, updated pews to chairs or carpet or platform or stage or lights or this and that. But what I like the most are the transformational projects that when someone was lost and they get saved. Yep. When someone didn't have Jesus Christ and now all of a sudden they find and discover Christ. It's an amazing thing. You know, we've seen that in our church, especially since I've been here. We've seen people that before they were saved, they were one way after they got saved, they were completely different. And really, that's how it should be, shouldn't it? The moment you get saved, you are a new person. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You shouldn't act the way that you used to act. But again, a lot of times growing up in a Christian home, in a Christian family, in a Christian a long time, I've seen a lot of people that claim Christianity but look no different. They act no different than the world. And the Bible says that, you know, we'll know them by, our, by their fruits but we should be different. We should look different, act different, all of those things. You know, and the amazing thing is that I can't change an individual, but God can. But I am the vessel that God uses to help in the transformation. You are the vessel that God uses to help in the transformation. And what we realize with the story of Saul is that God can do what no man can do. He can transform the most hardened sinner, the vilest men and women, and turn them into great ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And it's amazing when you think about it. Some of these stories, people that we, we think are so far beyond the reach of God, so far beyond the reach of the gospel, when Jesus gets a hold of them, no one is so far beyond the reach of the gospel. And that's what we read in Acts chapter 9. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is one of the most important events in history apart from Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. You see, his conversion plays a monumental role in the advancement of the kingdom across nations and centuries. Saul effectively was a terrorist. We know what terrorists are, right? That's what Saul was. Saul was a terrorist. 
against the church, against followers of the way. And for many within the church, many of those Christ followers, which remember, at this time, thousands upon thousands have been saved. We don't know exactly, but we've talked about some of the events. Pentecost, you know, 3,000. Then we had the other, where, you know, four or 5,000 were saved. We've had maybe upwards to 10 to 15,000 people have been saved up to this point. The gospel has exploded on the scene ever since Jesus left. And for many of those early followers, I'm sure the last person that they expected to see walk in their church was Saul. I mean, just imagine the most wicked, vilest sinner that we can imagine walking into our church. What would our reaction be? Hey, come sit by me, right? Probably not. <laughs> like, hey, we need to go make sure we're armed, you know, have our guns, which I know with Texas, you know, we all have guns and this and that, but hey, we need to watch this guy. I mean, that, that, that's kind of a natural reaction, right? And I'm sure for the, the early church, in, in a sense, if, if something like that were to happen to them where Saul was to walk in their presence, they'd be on high alert. Like, I've heard the stories of what Saul has done. I've heard of how, you know, he was instrumental in the death of Stephen, which was a great follower of Christ, a deacon in the early church. And look at verse number one. It says, Saul yet breathing out threatenings. Now, it's an interesting phrasing here. Breathing out threatenings and basically murder against the disciples. Breathing threats gives the picture, really, of a wild beast. Imagine that in your mind. Now, breathing in threats of murder and destruction may seem strange, but the idea is that Saul was so passionately determined to carry on his persecution against emerging Christian community that he was like a wild beast that snorts before it attacks. You know, we think about you know, bulls, how they, they paw the earth and they snort before they charge their victim, you know, <laughs> kind of like that. That was pretty good. <laughs> Did not practice that. <laughs> Never mind. I was thinking about something else. Um, <laughs> but j just imagine that. I mean, that, that's, that's the intensity that he has, that he, he, he is, man, he is bent on destroying and dis uh, just terrorizing anyone that's in his path. You know, uh, many of us maybe have, have gotten the, the time in our life where we've gotten so mad, where in a sense we've turned into a wild beast, where it doesn't matter who's in our path, they better get out of our path. And that's what we see here, and that's the connotation that we get here from Saul. And this is the imagery that Luke is describing. Now, I want you to listen to what R.C. Sproul says about, about this passage. He says, before Saul left, he went to the high priest seeking authorization to carry forth the persecution that he had initiated in Jerusalem against those who were in the northern religion, regions of Damascus, which is one of the oldest cities in the history of the world. Damascus was known even to Abraham. There was a large settlement of Jews in Damascus. During the reign of Nero, Nero killed 10,000 Jews that were assembled there. So Saul, suspecting that some of the Jews who lived in Damascus had already been seduced by the proclamation of Christians, got the necessary paperwork to go to each synagogue in that area with legal authority from the leaders of Israel, the high priests, to place them under arrest and bring them back to Jerusalem for further punishment, perhaps execution. That's the picture. That's what we see that is happening at the start of chapter 9. And everything that we've witnessed thus far in our series in Acts has led to this point that the gospel is exploding, the gospel is going forward. And Saul, really, hell-bent on destruction of the early church, but something changes for Saul. Look at verse number 3. 
And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You see, the first thing that we see here that changed in Saul's life is that he had an encounter with Jesus. Saul had an encounter with Jesus. I, I remember as a youth pastor, there were times where I, there was a time where I did a series, When People Meet Jesus. And the reality is that when people meet Jesus, everything changes. You are not the same person anymore. And now here, we have Saul the terrorist. If that's how you want to describe him, that's how I'll describe him today. We have Saul the terrorist that now has an encounter with the resurrected, the ascended Christ. And this man that is really bent on destruction, bent on destroying the church and bringing about any followers of the way uh, back to Jerusalem to persecute them, to, to slaughter them. All of a sudden, this blinding light, now we learn more about it in Acts chapter 26. I mean, this, this light was, was so blinding, more than even the sun itself. And in verse number four, the voice says, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the words of Scripture are very important, as I've said many times. Saul, Saul. Now, that repetition, we see that countless times in Scripture. 14 or 15 times from, from my count where the repetition of a, a person's name or title was given. You think about Abraham on Mount Moriah. You think about Moses at the burning bush when God spoke to him. You think about Sam, Samuel when he was living in the house of Eli, when God was trying to speak to, to Samuel. You think about David when he lamented over his death, the death of his son. You think about Jesus when he spoke to Martha, 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 uh, when he was in her home. You think about Jesus on the cross, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? So really what we understand here is that all of these instances, when there is that repetition, it indicates a very intensely personal form of address. And Saul heard the question from the already ascended Jesus, he had suffered persecution, but this is important. Jesus has already suffered persecution, has already died, has already risen, and he's asking the question, hey, why persecutest thou me? Here's what this is teaching us. It's showing us that Jesus identifies with his children because the early church were under persecution, were they not? Anyone that has been in the series and Acts so far, you understand that. The early church was under intense persecution, so Jesus is saying that, hey, you're not just persecuting me, you're persecuting those that are with me. He identifies with us. He so identifies with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. And he asks a question in verse number five, and he said, who art thou, Lord? So Saul is, is trying to figure out who this guy is, and then the voice introduces himself, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now, funny thing, goes back to my story that I mentioned earlier. You know, the other day we had a family come in looking at the school. We were interviewing them and talking to them, going, showing them around the classes. And we got to the first, first and second grade at the end, uh, which is where Nate is, and just kind of walking around and, and showing them. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, the kids are in there and, hey, say hi to this family and all that kind of stuff. And then Nate gets up on his chair and stands and turns around. And he says, I am Jesus. <laughs> my son. So anyway, I just had to share that with you guys because, you know, thinking about this passage, I don't know what he was doing, what he was saying, but anyway, he is Jesus. Uh, so anyway, 
but this voice introduces himself. I am Jesus, not Nate, but this is Jesus. This is the ascended Christ whom thou persecutest. Now, again, words of scripture are very important, especially understanding the Greek. Here, Saul didn't use the Greek term kairos in the lower sense of simple, polite address, but in the supreme imperial sense. He knew that he was being addressed by the sovereign one of heaven and Jesus saying, I am the one who you persecuted. Now, the verse continues and it says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks or, or the goads, however you want to interpret that. Now, it's a rather obscure reference that many of us might not understand, but in this day, it was very important to them. In antiquity, much of the produce was hauled in ox carts. And sometimes oxen, just like mules, were very stubborn. How many have ever met a stubborn ox? Anybody? Stubborn mule, stubborn donkey, stubborn wife, stubborn husband. All right, very good. We've, we've got the connotation there. All right. So <laughs> it's very hard, difficult for them to get moving. Sometimes the touch of the whip would make the oxen even more stubborn. And they would kick against the ox, ox cart because they didn't want to move which would then in turn shatter the ox cart. So to prevent that, the drivers mounted goads or spikes in front of the ox cart. And when the oxen kicked against the goad, the discomfort from doing so would get them moving, and rightly so. Sometimes when an ox kicked against the goads, the goad would pierce its foot and cause even more pain. So it would get angrier and then kick against the goads again. And really, you think, how foolish. But here's what Jesus is saying, and I'm not trying to just go so deep into this, but here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, Saul, in a sense, you stupid ox. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you doing things that you should not do? You see, resisting the lordship of Christ is not only sinful, but really it's foolish. It's It's stupid. <laughs> Because God raised him from the grave and placed him at the right hand and gave authority uh, from heaven to Jesus Christ. So the truth is to resist Jesus is foolish. And yet how many times have people resisted Jesus over the years? In a sense, they have kicked against the goads. No, I don't, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm going to do it my way. And all it does is create more pain, more sorrow, more agony and Jesus is, in sin, in a sense, saying to Saul, Hey, Saul, you're a foolish oxen that is kicking against the goats. So we see this encounter with Jesus, but what leads us on, verse number six. And he, I mean, get this picture here. He trembling. Now, Saul, I'm sure, was a very proud individual. Wouldn't you agree? Especially everything that he has gone through and I mean, you'd have to be proud and, you know, arrogant and full of yourself to be able to just take people and persecute them and, you know, slaughter them and murder them or take them to other people that would do that. He's got to be a very proud, abrasive individual. Again, he was a religious terrorist. Anyone that stood in the way was no match for Saul. And now look at verse number six. Where is Saul in the first part of verse six? Where is Saul? He's trembling where? On the ground. I mean, the picture, I mean, this, this, this proud individual. What do you want? What do you want, Lord? 
I mean, that's not the picture that you would think of an individual like that, right? You wouldn't think of an individual like that just cowering in fear. That kind of individual doesn't cower in fear. They make others cower in fear when they're in their presence. But now he is in the presence of the ascended Christ, and now he is, he is trembling because of whose presence he is in, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And what we see in the next couple of verses is a dramatic change. You see, he had an encounter with Jesus, which led to a dramatic change. And this is an important question that Saul is asking. Hey, what do you want me to do, Lord? You see, upon conversion, our agenda changes dramatically. And this happened to Saul, but those with Saul heard a voice, or they, they, they heard a sound, but no voice. And the resurrected Lord was revealing himself to Saul and Saul alone. Verse number six, continue on. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. So, again, here, here's the picture. Michael, come on up. Babyface, new name. <laughs> and shave the beard. All right, imagine you're blind. Okay, you can't see. Sure. <laughs> now he's really blind. He's really blind. Uh, just a simple illustration, but here's, here's what's going on. So imagine this is Saul, very proud individual, very abrasive individual, right, Christina? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's not. But imagine this is him. He's, he's proud. He's abrasive. When he goes into towns, it's not like, man, I wonder where I'm at. No, he's like, he is, his presence is known. His presence is felt. But here's what's going on. We have men that are literally leading him into town. So imagine, yeah, go ahead and walk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> jump. No, don't jump. So, so imagine this. I mean, if you're there in Damascus and you see Saul being led by hand into town. I'm going to lead you to your seat just so you don't fall, okay? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. You're blind. Now sit down right here. Right here. Sit down. No, right here. <laughs> Good job. But just, just imagine that picture, okay? And again, that's why I think we really have to, we, we don't just read the Bible for the sake of reading it, but we have to really understand what the, what the, the context is teaching us. Here he is being led, this terrorist, now coming into Damascus, and all those of the way, the followers of Jesus, see him being led into the city by hand. And for three days, verse 9 tells us, he couldn't see. Neither could he eat or drink. So again, just get this picture. Three days in darkness, three days in hunger and thirst, three days for Saul of Tarsus to contemplate what had happened to him on the road to Damascus. You see, Saul's life was turned upside down in a moment on this road. And just minutes really before his conversion, all that Paul could think about, listen to this, was what he could do to Christ. That's all that was on his mind. What can I do to Christ, to the followers of Christ? 
And now what we're going to discover as we continue this passage and really as we'll look at further on, what changed that day was no longer what can I do to Christ, but what can I do for Christ? You see, that's the difference. That's the difference when someone truly encounters Jesus, when someone truly gets saved. And really this reveals, and and we see that throughout the book of Acts, because of his testimony, because of the transformation that has taken place, it reveals to us the essence of his radical conversion. But the story continues in verse number 10, because remember that there were children of the way, there were followers of Christ there, and again, they had heard of Saul of Tarsus. So in their mind, he wasn't a good guy. He's not a guy that we just invite into our home. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, and there was a certain man or a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, this is not the same Ananias that we met earlier, Ananias and Sapphira. This is a different one. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I am here, Lord. So the Lord spoke to Ananias and in a vision, and now he is telling Ananias what he wants him to do. And the Lord said unto him, arise, go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So Jesus is telling Ananias what he wants him to do. But again, Ananias has heard and known of Saul of Tarsus. Look at verse number 14. Uh, Verse number 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. I've heard what he has done, Lord, how much evil he had done to thy saints at Jerusalem. I know the persecution that has happened at his hand. So basically, Lord, you want me to go to this guy, the guy that has terrorized your church, the guy that has terrorized other Christians, that's the one that you want me to go to? It doesn't make any sense. So what we see here is that we have a reluctant disciple. You know, hey, I want you to go to the the Christian killer and bring him into your home. You know, Ananias' response wasn't like, okay, cool, Lord, Uh, what should I feed him, chicken or steak or fish? You know, that wasn't his response. Like, you, you seriously want me to go to this guy that has terrorized the church? You know, honestly, Ananias is acting in a way that many of us would act. When we don't like how God is dealing in a situation or with circumstances, we often take it upon ourselves to set him straight, right? To suggest a better way. Lord, let me suggest a better way. Verse 14, and here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon the name, all, all, all that call upon thy name. Lord, he can do whatever he wants to us, and you want me to go into his house? Lord, I, I mean, I love you, but maybe this isn't the best situation, the best thing that, that we should do. You know, Jesus listened to Ananias' argument, but ultimately he cut him off and kind of told him what's up. And the heart of the message really is found in verse number 15. Verse 15, the Bible says, but the Lord said unto him, he's not yelling at him, he's not screaming, he's not mad, but he just helps him understand. Go thy way. And look at this next phrase. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
You see, we see this reluctant disciple, this follower of Jesus saying, Lord, I don't know about this. I don't know about this thing that you're asking me to do. But then Jesus sets the record straight and says, you know what? This is a chosen vessel. Saul is a chosen vessel. The term vessel means instrument, implement, tool. You see, Jesus chose Saul as his instrument to help cultivate the kingdom that he had planted. Saul wasn't choosing Christ that day, but Christ had chosen him for a purpose, to bear his name among the Gentiles, among the nations, among kings, among the children of Israel. You see, Saul had come bearing papers from the high authority, the high priest, to wipe out Christ's name from the face of the earth, but Christ stopped him on that day. He gave Saul a new burden to bear his name. And this passage reveals to us this amazing, this epic transformation. Verse 16, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Hey, he's going to have to suffer. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hand on him. So he listened. I mean, that's important too. We could speak of that for a while, but we won't. But he listened. He obeyed Jesus, even though it didn't make sense. Even though he thought he had a better way, he still listened to Jesus. He still followed the words of Jesus. And he listened and he put his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, now that's important right there. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou comest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forth forthwith and rose and was baptized and he went and received me and he was strengthened so he ate then the disciples um then uh, then was saul certain days with the disciples which were at damascus we're going to stop our reading for there this morning but this passage is about really an epic transformation and when you dive deeper you discover especially with saul's life whose name was later changed to paul that this epic transformation from the gospel was also an epic transformation of grace. You see, grace is transformative. You know, there is much that we can do that will change us. But so often, listen to this, we often start on the surface. You know, those that want to have a a better body, they're going to start dieting, they're going to start exercising, trying to change the surface, right? Trying to change the exterior, But what does Jesus do when he tries to change an individual? He goes on the inside. He starts on the inside and works his way out. Oftentimes, we start on the outside and work our way in. We've got it backwards. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to start on the inside and work my way out. And that's what grace does. Grace starts on the inside, works its way out. So Saul got a fresh start, and later he'd get a name change too. But think about this. Paul wasn't just covered by grace. He was transformed by grace. Paul wasn't just covered by grace. He was transformed by grace. And this undeserved favor, and that's what grace is, it transformed Paul like nothing else could. Why? How? Because salvation is not merely an addition. It's not adding Jesus to our list of things that we do. Not adding Jesus to our life. Salvation is a transformation. I think I have those in your notes. It's not just an addition. It's a transformation. It's the change that starts inside of you and works outside of you. 
And when grace gets a hold of a person, and when a person gets a hold of grace, amazing things happen. You see, back in verse number 15, Jesus told Ananias, and really, he was telling the disciples that, hey, he is a chosen vessel. I have chosen him. But on a deeper level, when he found Christ, here's what happened. Saul became activated. Activate means this, to make active, to cause to function or act. You see, we weren't saved to just be on the bench in the Christian life. We weren't saved to continue doing what we've always done. We were saved for a new purpose, to do what Jesus wants us to do. We have been activated. Hey, it's time to get up. It's time to move. It's time to do what God has called you to do. Now, some people think about grace and they go far to the extreme. Well, since I'm saved, I can live however I want. You've got it all wrong. That's not what grace does for you. That's not why you were saved to continue to live how you used to live. And there's a lot of people that do that and it blows my mind. I'm I'm part of a lot of these groups on Facebook and different ministry sites and there's part of me that just wants to delete myself from all of it because I see so much of a misunderstanding from some people basically like, I can still live however I want. I'm saved by grace of God. So I'm tired of all these, you know, hypocrites telling me what I should do. Like, you don't even know what the Bible is talking about. They're, they're trying to misinterpret the Bible to what they want it to say. And it's foolish. It really is. Now, there are some, don't get me wrong, there are some preachers that have gone too far. They have crossed the line, so to speak, and put a bunch of rules and standards that aren't biblical and that you have to follow this to be holy and righteous when the Bible says completely opposite things. But then you got some that come out of that and like, well, I'm just going to live how I want. And, you know, God saved me so I can live how I want. No, you you can't live how you want. You still have to live for him. You still have to do what he has called you to do. And Saul, if you know the story of Saul and DePaul, he wrote most of the New Testament. Saul didn't live the way that he wanted to live, did he? No, he didn't. He lived the way that Christ wanted him to live. Who would willingly suffer persecution? Who would willingly have to go to jail? I mean, I wouldn't be like, you know what? I'm going to sign up for that life. Please, let me have that life where I have to suffer persecution, where I have to try to escape time and time again, where I have to spend time shackled to, a, to a, 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 a other prisoners or guards in the jail. Yeah, that's what I want. I want to be shipwrecked and beaten. Yes, please, sign me up for that. No, we wouldn't choose that for ourselves. But Saul realized that his commission was so much greater than his own. And it wasn't about his life. I mean, uh, in Philippians and Ephesians and some of those books, it talks about that. You know, he had a great pedigree, didn't he? He was an amazing Jew and, and religious leader. But he said, all those things are but dung for Christ. Basically, I'm willing to give all of that up so I can be who Christ wants me to be. And the moment you get saved, your identity is staked in something that is new, something that is truly anchored and secure. And here's what we learn. Listen to this. The gospel, it's, it's a little different in your wording in your notes, but the gospel activates us with grace. The gospel activates us with grace. You see, you become gods the moment you get saved. Your identity is in Christ. And man, this is good. The moment of belief the moment you believe, the moment you trust Jesus as your Savior, that belief is combustible. 
Stay with me, I'll explain. You know what the word combustible means? To basically catch fire. It means able to catch fire and burn easily. Now, I've used this illustration before, but let me use it again today. All right, these are matches. Don't play with matches. We all know what this is. But is this any good like it is now? Is this, is this going to catch anything on fire in its current state? But it's a match, right? So what has to happen for this to catch fire? Has to be struck or really has to be activated, right? So once you activate the match, all of a sudden it's combustible, it's on fire. It's lit up. And really that's what Jesus does for us. That's what he wants to do for us. A match, look, this, this is a powerful tool, is it not? But can this match activate itself? No. What activates the match? The hand that is holding the match, right? What? The activator, yes. The hand that is holding the match or the activator is the one that activates the match. And as soon as I strike it against something like this, all of a sudden there's fire. It's combustible. You see, this is what God has called us to do. He has activated us as Christians to live out the explosive nature of the gospel. But many of us are like, you know what? I'm just going to be this. But what good is a match if it hasn't been lit? Especially if you're trying to light something on fire, if you're trying to start a fire. What good is this match? I need something. Well, you've got a box of matches. No, I'll figure out another way. Like, you think, well, that's foolish. Or you got a lighter. No, I'll figure out another way. But that lighter is going to light the fire. You know what? Just let me do it the way I want to do it. You're like, that would be foolish, but that's what we do with our lives. That's what we do in the Christian life. God, if you are saved, if you are a child of God, he has activated you. He's activated you. He doesn't want you to be who you used to be. He wants you to be who you are supposed to be. Is it making sense? Are you getting it? Are you truly getting it? Because I feel like sometimes we see an illustration like that and it's still, yeah, well, that's good. I'm still going to go live whatever I want and do whatever I want. The point is, I mean, in theory, we are like a box of matches just waiting to be activated. But the moment we got saved, what happened? Jesus activated us. He gave us a new purpose. The moment the match is lit, something happens. It becomes fire, becomes dangerous and beautiful, scary and awesome, destructive and necessary, small yet big. It becomes limitless. And when you have been activated by grace, your potential is limitless. 
Again, it's not about being saved to be just a better version of yourself. It's being saved to be a different new version that you never knew existed. And here's the reality. Mike, come on up. Are you saved? Yes. Okay, just make sure. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) Mike, if you're saved, you've been activated. So it's your job to then go live out the gospel. To then go and take that match, take the light that God has given you, and light others up. Now, not in a bad way, but light others up to share the gospel with them. So really, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go around and get people with you. So what I want you to do is is go find people and activate them. Go. Start with his wife. That's good. He's like, I don't want to be activated. I don't know. Make sure they tithe first, and then you can. No, I'm just kidding. That's all you got? Just one? Bring them up here. That's a great illustration of most Christians. Like, I did. I got one. 50 years, but I got one. Keep him away from matches? Yeah, we'll keep David away from the matches. That's a great idea. <laughs> He's got a torch, I'm sure. Probably in his back pocket. It's not surprising. That's good. She's playing it out. That's, that's awesome. See, man, yeah, teacher's pet. <laughs> Pastor's pet. But that, that's it. I, in a sense, I gave the gospel to Mike. He had become activated. He became a child of God. Then it was his job to go find other people. Now, I know, I understand, you know, sometimes kids don't want to come up here, but it's a good illustration, too. Sometimes we're like, no, I don't want that Jesus stuff. And that happens along the way, but it shouldn't stop you. You should still keep going on, right? Keep trying to tell more people about Jesus. And really, Amanda did a great job in the sense that once she became activated, hey, what was she supposed to do? Go activate others. And that's our job, church. That's why the church is not exploding today, because we have a lot of people that are acting like this instead of acting like, not that. (laughs) That's a good illustration, illustration too. Instead of acting like that. So what are you? Are you just the, the dead stick? Or are you the stick that has been activated? Thank you, guys. You can go to your seat. Look, grace isn't earned. It's not deserved. Paul didn't deserve God's favor, did he? He didn't deserve to be chosen and be used of God to go from a killing individual, a terrorist, to an evangelist. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve what Jesus offers us. But Jesus is the fire, and we don't deserve what he gives us. But yet he still willingly gives it to us. You see, Saul had this epic transformation that we'll learn more about in the weeks to come. You see, listen to this. Who he was had no bearings on who he would become. Get that in your minds. Who he was 
had no bearings on who he would become. And many of us can't get over that. We see an individual who they are now. There ain't no hope for that individual. They just need to go to hell. Christians talk like that, don't they? So we're giving up on people instead of trying to activate them, instead of trying to do what we're called to do. Yeah, whatever. They're too far gone. Well, so were you. So was I. But I'm thankful that many, many years ago, someone came to the home of my grandparents and knocked on their door, invited them to an old revival meeting. They came, and they got saved. And because of that, my dad and his brothers got saved. My dad met a, met a girl and married her, and she got saved. My mom, they had kids, and I got saved. It's all because someone said, you know what, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. We never know the influence that we have. We never know the reach that we have. Maybe you're not going to reach thousands, but you could be the one that reaches one that reaches the thousands. But so many of us are willing to just sit and do nothing. And this is what breaks my heart as a, as a Christian, as a child of God, as a pastor that's trying to get the church to go forward, to go, to do what God has called us to do. You know what? I know God is the fire and he has given me everything I need through the Holy Spirit, but you know what? I'm good. You're not. You're not good enough yourself. Activated means you're active. You're supposed to go. To activate means to make active, to cause, to function, or to act. We are not saved to sit. We are saved to go, to serve, to do what God has called us to do. You see, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the radical power that can transform a terrorist into an evangelist. And here's the key truth of the message, and I close with this. If you are saved, the gospel has activated you with grace. So go live out the explosive nature of a gospel-shaped, grace-driven identity. That's what this new series is about, to realize that you have been activated and that God can transform a terrorist into an evangelist. He can transform the vilest, the most wicked individual. And he can use us. And he does use us. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. If you're saved... You weren't called to be that dead match. You were called to be activated through the Holy Spirit, to be the fire. And if I were to do it, if I were to throw this match in there, what would happen? All of them would light on fire in my hand. But that's what we're called to do. But most of us have doused our flame, doused our fire because we want to fit in instead of stand out. Let's pray.